This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I feel like non-binary identities are those like beautiful spaces and breaths in between where like time is suspended and you like hold the attention of the audience during a performance because gender is a performance right hello and welcome to the body protest in this podcast we combine storytelling and science to better understand our relationship with our bodies i'm honey ross and i'm nadia craddock and this is season four hello my love how are you doing today oh very well thank you hello how are you Good, you know, I mean, I'm trying to desperately trying not to get the famous cold that is going around that is not COVID, but so far doing well, drinking a lot of Barocca and just staying afloat. You know what? I actually rediscovered Barocca two weeks ago because I had the famous cold and then I was like, what what can I I do to get me out of this? That is like rocket fuel. Barocca is like rocket fuel. Like I put one in a glass of water, I'm off for the day. I'm like, who is she? Who is this woman full of vitamin C? I know. And, you know, not to be like TMI and our like first episode back, but doesn't it make you like your wee fluorescent? Fluorescent? Oh, yeah. It's actually quite exciting. It's really like, yeah, it's quite festive. It's like something different for the winter months. I know. Always, always exciting. Always takes me by surprise. I'm like, how did we get onto the I know. <laughs> I know. What a lovely introduction to our first episode of season four. How exciting. We are back. <laughs> we are back and ready for business. Um, we've also had a lot of wonderful experiences before coming back to the podcast. We actually did a wonderful talk at the Cheltenham Literary Festival, which was very, very exciting. Um, we did it in their gorgeous tent, the voice box, which is their kind of new, like activist space it's very very lovely we felt very excited to be included and yeah it was just a wonderful day together which should we talk a bit about it i feel like the highlight of that event were those three dogs in the audience oh my god yeah i could have cried i know i kept looking at them they were hanging on our every word (laughs) and then so you had even said to me before there were this there was this woman with these gorgeous these three very different very gorgeous dogs in the front row and Nadia went to me like oh I feel like I feel like they're really a good like example of body positivity and then we went on stage and I we, you know what we were talking and I was kind of going off on a little tangent and I was like you know why we we celebrate these dogs for how different they are like why can't we celebrate people like that and then the golden retriever stood up and started a standing ovation like I shit you not that golden <laughs> retriever it's the, true like, it was a really magical moment like a dog gave us a standing ovation like it was really special and a round of applause yeah up on its hind legs it really hammered home the point it was like yeah damn straight we're all gorgeous we're all gorgeous pups yeah and it, it made me think and I don't know if I I've told you about this but there's a short youtube video put on by asda which is the association for size diversity and health where they've done a video about size diversity and dogs i um, didn't know that oh, a we must link in of, the show notes yeah we'll link in the show notes it's like written by dr deb Bagard from the us i think they call it the poodle video but as i say it's, it's short and it shows you can have size diversity like mm. it's a natural thing and like we shouldn't try and enforce a one size world. I love that. Anyway, let's get in. I'm so excited for our first episode back 
and to open the season, we have the wonderful Prashita Maheshwari Aplin. We spoke about everything from bi and pansexuality to not dressing for the male gaze, to challenging the internalized capitalist mindset, which I like a phrase that I keep coming back to, um, to finding community. Uh, we also had a really interesting discussion on activism online. Yes, uh, I was thinking about it afterwards and there's this whole word and discussion around flactivism, which yes. is actually what we were talking about. And I think it's a great word. I've got I've got really into portmanteaus. So when you have the two words combined, so it's, oh, I love a portmanteau. Oh, there's so nothing like a portmanteau. But so it's slacker and activism, and that's slacktivism together. So very poignant for activism in air quotes online on social media. It's very interesting because I feel like when I was in my early baby activist days of doing body, uh, body protesting pink protest, I used to be fighting a lot of being like, no, like we're not doing, like it's not slacktivist, not pink protest specifically because we were really working very hard, but like uh, kind of defending this generation around slacktivism. And now I'm like, no, it is bad. Like, I'm like I used to be really, like it's complicated, isn't it? It's, it, and, it and that's it what is, we get into. It is complicated. And the thing with this like kind of, idea of slacktivism or activism online is that it does have some utility it does mm-hmm. get a message out there quickly to a big audience like there is there is utility behind it but then there also is like what's happening next and I think that's always a question you ask like what's what's next and that's kind of where people like Prashita come in where they do so much work around community organizing and kind of like that doing the work around the next steps of like it's not just putting out that gorgeous infographic it's like can we get people in a room can we get you know something going to actually make positive change and that is exactly what Angel Prashita does. A hundred percent. Has a bit of a side note but just on the portmanteau front so I only discovered this this week do you know that podcast is a portmanteau? <gasps> no of what? iPod broadcast uh, what <laughs> broadcast what on an ipod and that's I'm... how it all began <laughs> ipod broadcast yeah holy a podcast. shit holy shit okay that recent oh my god it feels like yesterday i had an ipod nano like I what know. i know what i know the origin of the word fuck the fact that like we won't we'll have to explain to the next generation what ipods are like they mm-hmm. won't know we, they don't even make ipods anymore do they it's just iphones and pads I, I i'm not going to give up all this promotion just, they don't need this promotion from me no. <laughs> oh anyway we have um a wonderful knowledge noodle coming up at the end of the episode around uh eating disorders in the lgbtq plus community so stick around at the end of the episode for that and we hope you enjoy listening to our conversation with Prashita. welcome back First of all, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We are so pleased to have you. As we said earlier, we have been buying you up for ages and been like, oh, season four, when we get round to it, top of the list. So thank you so much for joining us. And I wonder if you could start by, it'd be lovely to hear you introduce yourself for our listeners. So I'm Prashita, I, and my pronouns are they, them. Um, I am a writer and a journalist and also um, an LGBTQ plus community organiser. Um, I also work in storytelling at the uh, LGBTQ plus charity Stonewall. I basically, yeah, like I just try and advocate for my community and prioritise community care as much as possible and use queerness as a lens through which to understand and restructure everything in life to be better and healthier. Uh, We love to start with this question and, you know, feel free to go in as much as you want to, but would you mind telling us a bit about your relationship with your body growing up? Definitely. Basically, my relationship with my body went from being something that I never even thought about, not at all, to being very fraught very, very quickly. Um, I grew up in India till I was nine, where the kind of only interaction that I would have with my body was around colour and and sort of like the darkness of my skin. but then that very quickly transitioned to also include um, the size of my body. I, I went through, like, I started going through puberty fairly young, I think, like 10, 11. Um, and I think my body was just changing in ways that the the girls around me who were in the UK, so I moved to the UK when I was nine, um, and I went to very white schools, 
I just didn't look like the people around me from from that age and that was hard enough as it was to kind of settle into a different culture but then also on top of that to feel like I didn't look like the bodies and the looks that were centered in prioritized not only around me but also in the media and also sort of like romanticized very much in the content and the media that I was taking in just went very quickly that I didn't feel at home in my body and didn't understand how and why I couldn't look like that (laughs) I think I used to say when I was kind of like when I first moved to the UK I used to say oh sometimes I'm just walking down the road and I kind of forget that I look very different from everyone around me and then every so often it kind of hits me that oh I don't actually look like I I, I have brown skin and that's going to impact the way that people perceive me but it very quickly went from that to me being totally aware of my of the space that I was taking up and my body shape and size compared to the people around me, um, especially at boarding school. Um, so, yeah, uh, so so that's where I kind of started off in my teens and it kind of developed into kind of a full bone eating disorder, various forms. And, you know, <laughs> healing from that is lin- is not linear. So I don't want to say like until a certain age because it, there's no really like specific age that I stopped feeling that like I still struggle with these things of course I do um but until I went to university like in in sixth form it was really kind of had a big grip on my life and really controlled my social interactions and my day-to-day life to a large extent but I slowly started to feel more comfortable with my body by the end of university and definitely feel like I'm in a much much healthier place with it now um which is lovely um yeah and I think a big part of that was definitely coming to terms with my queerness I think a big part of feeling not at place in my body also had to do with how I thought girls and women should look and present and also not knowing how I fit into these boundaries and structures so the Mm -hmm. more I've come into my queerness and my non-binary identity the more comfortable I felt with it as well. Yeah and I still think it's really interesting in terms of the finding community and we know in the research that members of the LGBTQ plus community are at a higher risk of experiencing an eating disorder. And obviously the community is not a monolith. It's it's very diverse within that um, umbrella. And I think that resonates for, for other people that we've spoken to or and, and know about in terms of finding that queer community and finding your own identity a little bit more can, can be a bit of a, a, a solve. And I, I wonder one maybe how you found that community and if there was any more in that that you would be happy to share yeah definitely um I came out as bisexual when I was 19 um but until that point you know I'd sort of been treading this line of oh I'm I'm not I'm not like bisexual I'm not gay but I like kissing girls when I'm drunk classic Mm -hmm. because that's you know so normalized and like fetishized obviously all the boys were like yeah we love it um (laughs) But I, <laughs> I didn't feel valid in in coming out. So I until you know even at university though I I did come out as bisexual. I still didn't feel like I truly belonged in the queer community because I was dating a cis man, um, at university. And I totally understand why this is the case. But I do think in within university culture gay societies can be quite gatekeepy because obviously you know they're also young and they're also like trying to be like really strong in their identities and like push people out but I think that environment of like lesbians and gay boys I just felt like I didn't I couldn't go to those meetings or couldn't belong to that group or that community because I wasn't gay enough I wasn't queer enough um and I think a lot of yeah a lot of people who aren't you know, who kind of are navigating that, that, that part of that sexuality do feel like that. Um, but after moving to London, I went to London Pride in 2019. And I knew that I didn't want to go to corporate pride. I knew I didn't just want to go and get drunk all day and watch the corporate parade. So um, I found out that Voices 4, which was uh, an activist group that was set up in New York by Adam Eli, uh, a few like four years ago or something now, uh, was starting a London chapter. And uh, were 
going to be marching in a protest march behind the corporate parade, along with the Outside Project, African Rainbow Family, Lesbians and Gays Support the Migrants, like loads of other community groups. Um, and I just knew that like that's how I wanted to participate in Pride. Um, at this point, I didn't have any queer friends in London. I didn't really know many people. Like I just moved for work and I had like a few friends from from uni um but luckily a couple of my friends who didn't live in London were coming down for London Pride and so we went to that together and I just never felt so full of like I don't know I never felt so much at home as I did in that space I just looked around me and everyone was so passionate and caring and handing out like water bottles and snacks and looking after each other but also just being, you know, having the right sort of frustration and anger and passion. And I just knew that this was the place that I had been missing my whole life. And after that, I just reached out to Voice for London and was like, can I, can I come organise? Luckily, the, <laughs> the people that were organising it so far were like, please, please come organise because we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so we really, we really built it up from nothing and figured it out ourselves and, and kind of set the structure. And, and, you know, there were a lot of ups and downs, but, you know, and it's still, you know, it's still very, very hard to maintain that sort of community group. And we definitely struggled with it over lockdown. We, we're not as active as we were before, but I really hope that we can get back into it. But all I know is that that family and that community is still there. And in, in, from in over the past year, even though we've not been together in person, yeah. that's expanded so much. I mean, you know, I met, you know, I started talking to you, honey, over the past year. <laughs> And there are so, so many incredible queer people that I've gotten to know through the organising that I started doing and have now met. I met a lot of them at Trans Pride this year, which was just so magical and such a healing space. Um, yeah, so that's how I found it. And I hope that it will just continue to grow because I just love it. I adore the work you do so much. You've actually really helped me with my uh, relationship to my bisexual identity. And it's something that, you know, it's a complicated relationship to have with yourself and other people and I think we're bombarded with a lot of confusing messaging and not much positive representation. What are some misconceptions around bisexuality you'd love to set straight and what are some of your favourite things about being bisexual? Um, I want to preface this by saying I am actually pansexual okay. um, now. Like I've come out as pansexual since I originally mm. came out as bisexual but like it's an important conversation to have within that context mm. because there's a lot of overlap between the two sexualities and they're not in like conflict with one another as a lot of people think they are you know the only thing that made me transition to saying I'm pansexual I mean now I te generally even just say I'm queer because that's just like an easier term to use and it also it kind of sums up my experiences beyond just my sexuality in terms of like how I see the world and other things and my gender but the only reason that I transitioned to saying that I'm pansexual is because my attraction to people is just entirely to do with individual people, uh, regardless of anything else, any any other identity markers that they might have. It's just entirely to do with the individual person and their energy and, and how we click. So I just started saying that. But but yeah, really, there is, there is a lot of overlap and they're not in conflict. So I think for me... One of the biggest misconceptions, which I like to challenge all the time, even though I am pansexual, is saying that bisexual people are somehow being transphobic by by kind of or like or, you know, phobic towards non-binary people by saying that they're only attracted to the binary genders of male and female. Mm -hmm. But the kind of definition that's most commonly used now for bisexuality is attraction to your own gender and other genders or attraction to multiple genders but I think I think the kind of just slight small distinction is that there generally is gender usually plays a part in people's attraction if you're bi, while it doesn't isn't a consideration at all for pansexual people. And I think the other big thing is obviously like bi people get called greedy a lot, um, get called sluts, get called just like sitting on the fence. I think that the kind of perception of bisexuality and sexuality generally, despite the fact that we say that we're, you know, challenging the patriarchy and challenging these norms as queer people, I think we still love to uh, put things into kind of neat little categories and boxes, but also like the community does still uphold this sort of male centric idea of sexuality and attraction. I think there's often 
kind of a misconception from outside of the community but also from within that uh by women are just you know they're actually just straight and they're just like men but they're just experimenting um which is having fun and that by men are actually just gay and aren't like ready to come out yet fully um <laughs> which is all ridiculous obviously um but i think it's really important for us to kind of sit with these spaces in between and actually say no there's so much love and beauty in between these boxes and neat little categories and yeah we try and use words to describe it the best we can but we are limited by the words that we have available to us and by the English language so you know bisexuality works for some people pansexuality works for other people but ultimately we represent we all represent this sort of space where we are saying we love who we love and yeah we're not going to be limited by anyone else's ideas of who that who that is also it doesn't just have to be love obviously yeah, <laughs> yeah. we fuck who we want exactly <laughs> oh my goodness but and i also really appreciate you you talking about the complexity of language there and i feel like there is language changes doesn't it and i feel like it's especially within some of this like queer terminology where it hasn't been the norm to have some of these terms within our lexicon I feel like if we even think like 20 30 years ago we it wasn't as commonplace to talk about bisexuality obviously it existed but it's like in terms of how we speak about it we speak about it a lot more now and then how people are claiming words and claiming words differently queer was a slur however many years ago and people are reclaiming that and I think it's really interesting to think how language is so fluid um and how we interpret different meanings of of words and I read a piece that you wrote earlier this year I think it was in the pink news about non-binary identity which I thought was really beautiful and I wonder if you could share a little bit about that and what that means to you perhaps gosh it's always something that really it's like it's like beautiful to talk about but it's always it's always hard to talk about as well because along with like wanting to focus on the joys and beauty of the identity or like constantly have to challenge the fact and like be reminded of the fact that a lot of people in the world think that like it's it's not real and that Mm -hmm. like you're just like deluded delusional or like mentally ill or just wanting attention but I think a big part of like kind of claiming my non-binary identity is sort of is not is not ignoring that but actually sitting in that and thinking about how despite all of this and despite the boxes that I've sort of been like forced to cram into my whole life like the the kind of phrase that I often use is like my existence is expansive and it can't be contained and I just love to say that I love to think that because it makes you feel yeah it just it just it makes me feel so validated in knowing that my mind and my body and who I am and how I want to exist it just it just can't be contained by any artificially created bounds like I I am expansive to the greatest extent possible and capable of being however and whoever I am and want to be like I am non-binary but and that's like not a choice like it's like it's I am non-binary but there's also a lot of choice involved in how you in how you like navigate that and I think for me non-binary identities fill this like beautiful space again like it's a space in between things right I I'm a classical musician like I'm a classically trained musician and often when you'd be like rushing through pieces because like the adrenaline in like in like performances and like in rehearsals you get told to like slow down and, and think about the spaces in between like actually the silences are the most important parts it's not it's not rushing from one virtual sick note to the next it's the this the breaths in between that like holds hold people's attention in the audience and I feel like my, I feel like non-binary identities are those like beautiful spaces and breaths in between where like time is suspended and you like hold the attention of the audience during a performance because gender is a performance right Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> what instruments do you play? What instrument? 
Um, I play the violin and I sing. I used to play the piano. Um, but yeah, like I'm mostly training on the violin. But I'm trying to learn the bass at the moment very, very slowly because I wanted to do like a different type of music. But yeah, that's where my background you is. You truly are expansive. The skills, the, uh, you are, you're an incredible <laughs> person. No, and you know, that's so beautifully put. Everything you just said is so, yeah, it's so wonderful to hear you speak on that. Oprah ha- talks about aha moments where you kind of, you know, come to Jesus, figure it out. Do you think you had a particular, I mean, and like you said already, healing and everything isn't linear, but did you have a particular moment where you were like, okay, I feel like I feel centered and safe within myself. Like, did you have one of those? I think it was, I think there was like, there were a couple. Um, One was, so I had this like very dreamy, relaxing afternoon where I was, and it wasn't actually very long ago. Like this, you know, this shows that like I, you know, as much as I talk about accepting and sitting with myself and loving myself in like a non, you know, non-capitalist self-love way, um, it, it wasn't very long ago. It was like earlier this year that I was having this sort of like very relaxing dreamy afternoon, which I don't get very often, and drawing a plant <laughs> on like a piece of paper. Um, and I was just, I was just drawing this very, very intricate plant that was growing in out of itself um with just one coloring pencil and I was just like really engrossed in it uh listening to music and I had this sort of weird (laughs) aha realization moment where I was like I am made up of all the same things as the plants around me and when plants grow and change depending on the seasons and depending on the external factors and pressures that are being put on them. We don't look at them and say, oh, like, why would you do that? That's gross. You look gross now. (laughs) No, like we look at them and we say, wow, like so beautiful. Nature's growing and changing and adjusting to its environment. And I just sort of looked at myself and thought, I had this weird moment of feeling like the plant was like, growing in me but also I was the plant and just just sitting in this knowledge that like yeah if if we can look at the world around us and think that it's beautiful for it to be changing and growing and adjusting to its environment and it's so like resilient for doing that then why would I look at myself for doing the same thing and think oh no like I don't want you to look like that I want you to bend in a certain way I want you to change how you are because I'm my body is also just trying to do the best it can to survive and grow and look after me based on my environment and the the factors that are around me and you know that doesn't mean that like I don't want to look after it like I want to you know I want to feed it the right things and look after it just as I would nurture a plant in in my garden but I also like wouldn't chastise that plant for growing in ways that I don't want it to when it's just doing its thing. And I think that was a big moment for me. And I think also coming out as non-binary was another big moment for me. Because again, like I finally realised <laughs> why I felt so not at home in my body as a woman. Like I would feel sick when people called me a lady, you know, in the shop when they're like, let that lady pass. I would feel physically sick and like want to hide away. And I spent so long wearing I used to wear like tiny skirts at school all the time but then as I became more and more uncomfortable with my body and also who I was and how I fit into it and like how how I looked and whether people found me attractive in like a feminine way I started just exclusively wearing like black jeans and like a hoodie for like ages and I think the more I started to explore my style as coming out as queer and like not having not feeling like I needed to dress to for the male gaze not feeling like I need to dress in a to like perform femininity for the male gaze that helped and then coming out as non-binary was just a sort of like sigh of relief and I actually feel I've, I've worn I wear dresses and skirts like so much now because I'm coming mm. at it from this other angle I'm not coming at it from like I need to perform femininity or look good for men I'm coming at it from like this is me and this is what I want to wear it's fun yeah well, I mean, it's taking the kind of the most fun element of the performance aspect of gender and being like, no, I get to play with anything I want to and wear anything I want to. And it's so liberating, yeah. you know, back to the plant metaphor. It's like, to me, it's almost like you coming, you finding your non-binary identity is like 
you were taken out of a pot and planted into a field so you could just grow much bigger you know in the best way and yeah Yeah. it's beautiful (laughs) (laughs) yeah I keep thinking about the expansive thought as well and I think that reflects you in so many levels and all the different things that you do and just to maybe transition us back to some of the work that you do and you're spilling so many different plates so uh, there's Stonewall there's the Bricks magazine being the politics editor for that you write for a number of different publications I'm definitely going to miss something here but you're a trustee for Voices for London you're also an advisor for Split Banana which is an organization focused for provision of inclusive relationships and sex education in schools, which I think is incredible. I do not wish to be a teenager on so many levels, but for that, I'm like, that inclusive education, sex education, I'm like, that's that's something that's happening really, that's really exciting me. But I would love to hear for you with all of these different things going on, what's maybe the common thread and what excites you most in, in the work that you're doing? I think the common thread is sort of what I was coming, what I mentioned right at the start when I introduced myself was to say like, I like to use my queerness to look at the world around me and sort of like challenge the ways that things have been done and the things, the the way that things are done and the, the, the kind of norms that are imposed upon us and challenge that and try to basically work to shift that in a way that I think is more positive and and healthier for people and and is going to provide people with a more fulfilling experience of the human existence. So all of those things, I think, kind of feed into that. Um, You know, I think the kind of organising and the writing um, is also obviously very direct directly linked to that and so is the the inclusive sex education. Like, I think I just want to... I want to look back at my life and think what was missing from my life and how can I offer that to people around me now and just basically do what I can to do that. Um, I think another part of it is, um, I wrote about this on my Instagram a while ago, but like, it's all about stories for me. Like I'm the storytelling lead at Stonewall, which is such a Gen Z job title, but I love it. Um, (laughs) But really stories have always been so, so important to me because growing up, I found a lot of solace in like escaping the world through stories. Like I was struggling with a lot of things, struggling with, you know, I I don't have a very good relationship with my, with members of my family. Like I I was struggling with school and, and racism and bullying and just so many things. And I used to escape into books. Like I'd stay up all night reading books with a torch, proper nerd, <laughs> like, <laughs> which is awesome. We love that at the here. time I was bullied for it. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but then as I grew up, I realised that actually like stories have so much power to change minds and to help people feel seen. And, and I didn't, I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel heard for most of my life. And if I can use platforms that I have, like Bricks Magazine, like my Instagram, whatever, um, to put out other people's stories in the world so that others who are looking at them might feel less alone, um, then that is just like so wonderful and important and beautiful. I just want to bring in as many people's perspectives, share their stories so that if there's another, you know, scared little girl out there who wants to feel a bit more seen than they might do yeah that's that's so nice are there any stories that you go back to time and time again that you find solace in or that have made a difference in your in your life so far um I mean I love Ocean Vyong um obviously who doesn't it's not like their specific story obviously it's not like entirely linked to mine but I think on on earth we're briefly gorgeous in the way that he talked about the kind of relationship with an immigrant mother and also then has the kind of things that he says about queerness you know there's there's one quote that sticks with me time and time again and it's not so much a story but it I feel like it shapes my stories and my life all the time um that queerness demanded an alternate innovation from him And that's what comes back to what I was saying, you know, like I use queerness to challenge the structures in the world around me and and kind of like it demands, it does demand you to innovate for yourself um, and come up with something better and happier than what you were exposed to growing up. So I feel like, you know, his general 
the way that he talks about the world and his life and his stories, even though it's not like the specific details of the story, that, that really does stick with me and is very important to me in my life, I think. identify with the term activist because I know that a lot of people have distanced themselves from the term and I'm intrigued to feel like I would I'd be interested to know your relationship with the word because obviously I think the language around activism has changed so much in the last 10 years I mean 20 years even I think you know I mean it's just changed so much and I think the world has been commandeered in a lot of ways um how do you feel about the changes that have happened in the activism space and you know for better or for worse <laughs> Um, <laughs> this is something I, I feel very strongly about. Um, I don't use the word activist, no. Um, I, like, I don't... It's it's a shame, because I think that that word had a lot of great meaning behind it, and there were a lot of incredible people who were activists, and who are activists, who are doing excellent work. So it's not a thing to discredit their work. Like, you know, not all people who call themselves activists are doing anything wrong. But I personally feel, especially using social media as like a way that I do a lot of things. I just don't want to fall into certain tropes of what that word has come to mean. So I usually call myself a community organiser because I actually organise with the community. Like I I, I actually, I, I organise with the community and like centre members of the community in the work that I do. Like, yeah, I use social media to like, you know, write and get, different messages out and to share things um and again there's also nothing wrong with using social media to do those things but I just feel like community organizers suits me better in the in the work that I actually I do uh I actually do and I also say advocate now and then because I just like advocate for certain things um which is which is fine which which makes sense uh so yeah it's it's nothing against people who call themselves activists and nothing against the activism sphere but I think on like a structural level, um, activism has become like the sort of career choice in a lot of ways. Like it's just become another form of a career. Like I think there are there are people who started out just being themselves and talking about things that were important to them. And sometimes they would comment on political things and sometimes they would drive certain movements and I think a lot of those people didn't even call themselves activists, right? Like they got labelled activists by publications or by people who wanted to give them awards and whatever. And and very, very quickly, the meaning of activist became very blurred and very conflated with a high fi- follow account on social media, basically, like, and fame. Um, I mean, and like, this isn't also, this isn't new. Like, this is obviously a lot easier to see because of social media but even you know in kind of other community-led movements we had there were celebrity names there were people who were perceived as the leaders even though you know they might have been organizing and leading certain groups but there were hundreds of people thousands of people who were working very very hard every day on a lot of these movements and so yeah it's like (laughs) it's like that's not new humans love to place certain people on a pedestal and to have the sort of people to like look up to but I think it's it's a lot easier to see and and also a lot more almost dangerous on social media because those messages that are sometimes not very well researched not putting the pride of the community first um are being spread from the mouths of those and the platform the instagrams of those who don't necessarily actually like know what the best thing is for the community and 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 like and like the grassroots organizing the grassroots movements that are going on and those same people get platformed all the time their voices get amplified all the time and again like most of the time this isn't that these people's fault it's just that the activism sphere has has been very closely tied to like brands and pr now and to awards and publications and a lot of the time, the people that are seen as activists of certain movements are just the most palatable form of that community, which, like, really actually undermines the movement. No, completely. And, you know, uh, that is... You've said what needed to be said, and I'm, you know, and you put it better than I could ever hope to. And it's an important conversation to have. I think it's, yeah, it's a word that's lost a lot of meaning, and and it's good, you know... It, 
that is why but it's also important to know that it's nothing new and that you know there have always been people coming in and taking the accolade almost in the final hour when there like you said have been hundreds of people working really hard behind the scenes to fight for their communities and then someone is able to swoop in and be like hello i'm the most digestible version of this enjoy yeah and i guess it's also how people signal to other people and especially i can see how on instagram we direct people to the same thing so then you then see oh this account is all about racism for example therefore this account is my go-to and it's my digestible source of information for everything as you said, there's so many people doing that work and it just may be that that person or people behind that account are able to package and have the time and energy to package something in a digestible way that becomes very accessible yeah, for people. Yeah, it, well, it, it, exactly. And I think it's always worth being kind of cognizant of that and, and, looking, and, and looking who's doing work on the ground and... And who are the organisers in your area? Because I think also we kind of gravitate when we hear about these certain organisations, but there's so much going on across the country, across the world, and and there's lots of things we can be involved in. And so I think there's the other kind of flip side that you can, can feel left out sometimes because you're not in spaces that you see on Instagram. And then you're like, oh, actually, you know, there's, there's stuff going on and, and look for the people um, around you doing doing what is speaking to you or what you want to find out more about as well so and it's not that we all have to do things on our own as well and I think that's the other flip side with this it's like you don't have to do anything on your own there are other people and it's kind of going back to what we were talking about at the top of the of the conversation about finding community uh, especially if you're kind of working and agitating for change on some dimension the chances are there are going to be other people who have the same vision or the same hope or the same end goal and objective as you. And and I think sometimes there's an element of ego that comes into it being like, I want to be the person who is solely in charge and behind um, creating this change. And it's, it's not the reality. Um, and actually yeah. think about the process along the way and how enjoyable that yeah. process can be within that community and the joy that and comfort the community can bring. But that's totally it, though, because, you know, having individual people as activists that are placed on pedestals makes activism work look like an individual, like individual venture. Like it's a very individualistic way of approaching progress and like changing, changing things and supporting our communities and making feel making all that better for the people around us has never been an individual venture like that's just mm. it's just wrong yeah no and should it, it be it detracts from the what should be important right exactly yeah and so that's exactly the problem like you know i feel like a lot of these people like again i'm not nothing against them specifically but they have to have a personal brand because they're creating their follower base they're creating their very like well-attuned aesthetic brand and that means that a lot of the time collaboration and community is totally left out of the conversation because they have need they need to have the credit they need to be the center stage um that's just not how it works that's just not how community care and organizing works and, and i i just i like feel like that that's the most important thing which is why i call myself a community organizer it makes makes a lot of sense and it's 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 really useful to have these conversations so we've covered I feel like we've covered so much in our time together and it's been so using that word again expansive um (laughs) but something that we love to ask all of our guests is how you take care of yourself and this this can be in any way you interpret the question so how do you take care of yourself what do you do to recharge or um feel good in your body what do you do (laughs) <laughs> this is a very hard question for me because I find it very hard to take breaks um but I'm challenging that internalized capitalist mindset all the time um but two things very very important to me dancing which was missing from my life in lockdown I mean I did like not like not like prof- not like I'm not good at dancing like I, I don't I don't do like professional well there's no such thing as being good at dancing but I don't need professional dancing I just mean like dancing to music with my friends um I find it very very freeing and just so wonderful and it's something that I used to really struggle with because I felt like I had to look a certain way on the dance floor but now I honestly don't care what I look like to anyone around me and I just feel so full of joy and free and it's just like a fun way to expel energy and 
just feel great. And so just want to like, that was missing during lockdown. I mean, I could dance at home a bit, but just being able to go back and dance all night again has been so good for my mental health. Um, and the other thing is cooking, um, for sure. Like, I am very lucky to live in a flat of some wonderful people. And we have little dinner parties now and then on Sunday. We did a harvest day feast. <laughs> so oh, all of us cooked <laughs> all of us cooked a different oh. course. <laughs> I'm joining your friend group. A different course. And then we lit loads of candles and yeah, just ate all the courses one after another and talked for hours. Um and I made homemade gnocchi for the first time oh. and had some friends around for dinner a couple of weeks ago and like I just feel find it so so healing and relaxing to kind of take that time out to prepare food from scratch and have that sort of like have the fresh vegetables in my hand and like you know I'm I'm vegan as well so I feel very like in touch with the like n- like nature and like there's no, there's no death involved you know not like you know not to, not going on off on a vegan tangent right now but I'm just just saying like it feels very feels very nourishing and and, and natural and taking that time, that time to like feed myself and nourish myself, you know, going back to what we've been talking about in this episode, I very much have struggled with that. You know, I struggled with food and I struggled with my relationship Mm. with food, like all my life. Um, And so to be like, no, I don't need to like either binge and like, like binge stuff that makes me feel bad about myself or like not eat anything. I can Mm -hmm. look after myself really, really well and feel really like, fill myself with whole foods that make me feel full in like a really happy nourished way and take the time to do that and also then just get to spend brilliant time with my friends having wonderful conversations over the candlelight oh what a dreamy dreamy answer (laughs) one of the best answers we've had to date i'd say i know Um, i know i'm like me and nadia are coming over uh sorry we would love that obviously we'll cook a big meal no, I would love that. Producer no, Daisy's Daisy also too, is coming. Yes. <laughs> She's opted no, in. honestly. Um, Prashita, we have loved having you so much. Um, two things. One, what can our listeners do to support the work you do? And two, where can we find you? Online. <laughs> Online. Not like, don't give yeah. us your address. Give us in private your address, but not the listeners. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you in private for the dinner party. Um, I, <laughs> to support my work, um, honestly, the most important thing is like supporting the initiatives that are going on in the country. Like, it's nothing to do with me personally, but that is the way to support my work because I do try and use my platform to amplify campaigns and protests. So, like, the best way you, you can support my work is like going and joining a community group and like getting involved with the work that is going on. Actually, like go out and do it. And even if you even if you're you know, even if you're not able to attend in person, there are lots of virtual meetings going on, lots of virtual organizing. Go and take part in that. But also, <laughs> if you'd like to read my writing, obviously, that would be wonderful because I do write a lot of stuff um, and it's nice when people read it. <laughs> so you can read some <laughs> of my articles on Bricks magazine, but also I write for other publications like Gaudem and Metal. Um, so, yeah, probably find me through Google, but also there's a link tree on my social media. So my Instagram is at Prashita underscore Eloise. Um, and also do support Voices for London. Like, as I said, we're a bit quiet at the moment, but we are, we have been running a fundraising campaign for a Chechen man who had to leave Chechnya because of the, the kind of persecution of gay people. Um, And we've been running a fundraising campaign. So there's a crown funder at Voices for London Um, that if you would like to support, that would be so wonderful. We'll, we'll link all of this in our show notes as well to give people the quickest route to it and... Prashita, thank you again for joining us. You are such a fantastic person, inside <laughs> and out. Yeah, we really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me on. I could really, truly listen to Prashita talk all day. What a gorgeous interview. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And actually off the back, I actually have just bought Ocean Young's On Earth, We Are Briefly Gorgeous, following that conversation for my favourite local independent bookshop 
So I'm very excited to read. Oh, very, very good thinking. You're going to have to lend me that copy when you're done. I'm desperate to read it. So I'd love if we could slightly backtrack and you could tell me a bit more about the research you were talking about around eating disorders in the LGBTQ plus community. Yes, absolutely. So very, very broadly speaking, research indicates that the LGBTQ plus community experience an elevated risk for eating disorders. And what I mean by that is that we often see higher rates of eating disorders, disordered eating and body dissatisfaction among people who are not straight and who are not cisgender. So then before getting into the research in any more depth, there are a couple of important caveats because one, we can't cover everything in a very short knowledge noodle. And two, the research isn't quite there yet. We've got some good studies, but they aren't getting into all of the different levels of nuance. So thinking about eating disorders in the LGBTQ plus community is obviously a huge, huge topic because the LGBTQ plus community is not a monolith. So lesbian, gay, bi, pan, sexuality, asexuality, etc. all refer to sexual orientation, which is about a person's sexual identity, their sexual attraction, who they have sex with. And all of these are like, like distinct identities in their own right, but they are, that's also, sexual orientation is also very distinct from gender identity. Mm-hmm. And within LGBTQ+, it's like that's all lumped in together. And what we mean by gender identity, people can be cisgender, they can be transgender, they can be genderqueer, they can be gender non-conforming, non-binary. Like there's a whole range of different gender identities. So why this is important is that we can't equate the experiences of, for example, a cisgender gay man with a trans woman who's heterosexual. Like they're not... They're very different. There might be, yeah, there might be some shared experience, but there's also like very different experiences that they they have. They're not the same. And that's all before we factor in other highly salient aspects of identity that intersect, like ethnicity, like class, like age as well as other contextual factors, like where in the world are you living? Like, what what's your environment like? What's the law? What's the legislation in your country? So No, I'm so glad you got into that because I think it's very important to be mindful of those nuances when discussing the LGBTQ plus community because like you said, it's not a monolith and mm-hmm. there are plenty of intersections of identity. Um, that being said, what do we know when it comes to the research? Okay, so digging in, I thought it would be useful to talk about two studies. One that's broadly on sexual minorities, a word that I don't love, but it's the academic shorthand for people who are not heterosexual. And and how the research is done is that we do have people who are lesbian, gay, bi, lumped in together. So one study talking about that. Another study I want to talk about is on gender minorities. So again, not a gorgeous term, but another academic shorthand to refer to people who are not cisgender. So trans, genderqueer, gender non-binary, gender non-conforming, etc. Both of these studies are from the US and are based on tens of thousands of, of people. So they are definitely valuable. We don't always get into the nitty gritty between all of these different specific identities. So paper number one, actually quite hot off the press. It was published last year in the International Ooh. Journal of Eating Disorders, led by Dr. Rebecca Camody from Yale University. And this paper was focused on sexual minority adults and eating disorders. And what they found was that sexual minority adults were two to four times more likely to have ever experienced an eating disorder diagnosis of anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, or binge eating disorder compared to cisgender heterosexual adults. So what's really useful about this study in particular is that it's based on 35,000 adults living in the US And they also looked, which I thought was really interesting, they also looked at sexual minority adults who reported experiencing discrimination. And they found within people who who had experienced discrimination and reported they had experienced discrimination, they were more likely to experience anorexia than those who said that they hadn't reported discrimination. So that's kind of interesting and maybe something we can get back to because there's a whole lot of work around the influence of discrimination on health, mental health in general, but then disordered eating and eating disorders is one strand of that. So yeah, I think it's really interesting paper. Doesn't go into all of the nuances, as I said, and, and it would have been really nice to have seen how there's differences by gender, for example, but again, kind of 
going back to that key finding that sexual minority adults were two to four times more likely to have ever had an eating disorder diagnosis, which is quite um, eye-opening, I think. It's definitely eye-opening. So the second study looks at both gender minorities and sexual minorities in relation to eating disorders. It's a slightly older paper, but not old in the world of academic research. So it's from 2015 and an oldie published... but a goldie <laughs> an oldie but a goldie but it but it's not it's not like it's you know it's, it's not still, that old it, it's really not that old like 2015 well that was yesterday to, in my I'm yeah, like very truly. close I'm still recovering um, yeah yeah my goodness that was um anyway um this paper was published in the journal of adolescent health led by dr elizabeth dimer and it's based on almost 300,000 students in the US, so college age students, so 18, 19, 20, 21, that kind of age range. And they found that transgender and cisgender non-heterosexual college students were at an increased risk of eating disorder diagnosis and compensatory eating disorder behaviours. So essentially gender minorities, sexual minorities, increased risk of disordered eating, eating disorders. Mm. And then kind of looking in a little deeper, Rates of past year self-reported eating disorder diagnosis, so people saying, yeah, I've had this in the last year, I've had this eating disorder, I've had that eating disorder in the past year, as well as rates of past month's use of things like diet pills or engaging in vomiting or using laxatives, were highest among the transgender students and lowest among the cisgender heterosexual men. So like we can infer from that that then the transgender students were at the highest risk of eating disorders with, mm. within looking at all of these groups. So again, the study doesn't go into like the really specific nuances. So it doesn't distinguish between different trans identities. It doesn't look at non-binary, for example. Mm. It doesn't look at differences between trans men, trans women. But broadly, more people who identified as trans within the study were at highest risk of engaging in disordered eating, which again is something really important to to recognise in these conversations that we have around eating disorders. Those are really fascinating, but also very harrowing studies, Mm. but that's why they're so important. I'd love to know, and I'm sure there are, I mean, I'm aware that there are a multitude of reasons, but why do you think specifically the LGBTQ plus community experiences such an elevated risk for eating disorders? Yeah, it's a really good question. And just as you said, there's a a multitude of factors that play into this. So just to list a few and based on the research, based on people's lived experience to kind of put some together, there are factors like discrimination, so discrimination in society, discrimination in relationships there are factors like internalized shame internalized social stigma there's the pressure to conceal one's identity there's social isolation social alienation there is also the need to pass particularly for trans individuals to feel safe and accepted and being able to like go around their daily business without um without experiencing some of that very overt discrimination as, as I say, so they go around their, their day-to-day. There's also factors like gender dysphoria, which plays into all of this, as well as specific appearance ideals and stereotypes within the LGBT plus community about what people of different identities should look like or those stereotypes they should conform to. So there's a lot in there, but that's that's a, a, the gist of things. And so, and then one thing I just want to bring up quickly, but again, I think we might return to this at another another point somewhere somehow, but relating back to the conversation with Prashita, who was talking about community, there's a model that's used by researchers a lot in these contexts called minority stress theory, which describes how experiences of discrimination, internalised prejudice, internalised um, stigma, the fear and like the hypervigilance around being stigmatized mm. so all all of which can be viewed as minority stresses like that stress that minority stress contributes to a whole range of negative health outcomes from mental and physical health negative outcomes and with that factor of community factors like having that tight knit community having social support having a sense of belonging within a community can serve as a buffer to some of those stresses so it can reduce the risk of negative health outcomes um obviously community is not the only solution community is really important but 
we also obviously obviously and can't stress this enough need equitable health care particularly perhaps for trans individuals who are just do not have equitable health care most of the time so I think it's it's thinking about this in a, in a bigger mm. context but but in terms of things that can kind of help you shoulder the burden of feeling less under that pressure is finding your people and finding your community and being able to share the weight of that I think but obviously as you said equitable healthcare is the <laughs> the main thing uh, yeah yeah I think that's what yeah we're, we're thinking about all of these different levels right so mm. you can think about what other things you can do and that's a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the podcast in terms of like changing your own self-talk and your own self-narrative yeah. and like the um that's something you can do at an individual level at a slightly like the next level up like finding community finding that sense of belonging so how what are your relationships like and and being in safe relationships that make you feel seen and heard and mm. valued well yeah maybe a yeah, relationship like broader community so feeling connected with a broader community but then you have those like macro level factors so it's like it's a big it's the big picture things it's it's institutions, it's the law, it's healthcare, it's education, it's all of those things. And you kind of need all of all of that. But yeah, it's thinking about it in different ways. But I think that minority stress theory is a neat way of thinking why the LGBT plus community may be high risk of eating disorders. And as I said at the beginning with the caveats, there's lots more that comes into this, but I think that's a, a little overview. A gorgeous noodle. Thank you so much, Nadia, for sharing that. Thank you so much for listening to the Body Protest podcast. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and it would mean the world to us if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. You know what to do. And if you're left wanting more, why not check out our new Patreon for some exclusive bonus content. You can also now drop us an email at thebodyprotest at gmail.com. This podcast is produced by the fantastic Daisy Grant and music by the wonderful Eve Garland. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.